So this is a live broadcast for our 17th episode. I wanted to do it live because it's been so long since we've released anything. And if we don't do it live, then I still have to do all of the editing and post-processing. And it'll still be another week before it gets published. So this way we can do a live episode and Patreon subscribers can still listen a little bit ahead of time. And we can still do some true crime stories and be able to share that with people. But there's also still time for me to post-process and actually post the um, finished product. So everybody that is going to be listening today, you might hear us kind of talking about comments that people are making. That's because we're doing this live on Saturday. It is January 2nd. Um, and we're doing it on our Podbean live broadcast application. So in the future, if you are a listener and you want to be able to get early access and listen to live episodes um, and kind of just experience that aspect of the podcast, you can become a subscriber at patreon.com slash between the crimes. And we post information about that on our Twitter and our Facebook and our Instagram. So if you hop on any of those, you can see the links pretty easily and get some more information on joining. And then today we have my now fiance, Jason, joining us. Hello, everyone. (laughs) Jenna's out. It's just crazy with the COVID situation and we're just trying to be as safe as possible. So anytime one of us has had somebody in the workplace test positive, it's just safest to not be around each other since we're not in the same household. So today's kind of another one of those situations. We just want to make sure that we're keeping Jenna safe and Jenna's keeping us safe. So she might pop in and be listening to us live today. But Jason found and researched a super crazy story that he's going to share with us. So that'll be super exciting. This will be my second episode on the podcast. Uh, So anytime there's an issue, uh, I'm more than happy to step in and help support Celia and Jenna uh, on the podcast. So uh, most of you probably have heard me on a, one of the previous episodes and hopefully this is a little bit more polished than that one. So, <laughs> but uh, it's good to be back. Yeah, it's going to be good. I'm, I like when you join cause, cause it kind of switches things up a little bit and keeps it interesting and it kind of gives like a different perspective, especially cause you're not like a stereotypical true crime fan by any standards. So it's kind of interesting to see like a different perspective on true crime cases. Yeah. I wouldn't say that I'm, as invested as both you and Jenna and your listeners, but uh, there's still some very interesting aspects of the crimes. And I think everybody, no matter what, has always been interested in mysteries and and the violence, um, you know, and kind of what goes through these people's minds that commit these crimes. Uh, so even though I may not live and breathe it, I still find uh, great stories and interest. So, uh, but yeah, I think this one will be great. I actually handpicked this one. Um, Celia and Jenna keep a list of ideas of stories to do and and I looked through that and ended up finding one on my own that I think will be really cool to share with everyone so I'm excited okay well I did want to share with everybody we have been off for a while for a variety of reasons one of which is the holidays and just work schedules and things like that Jenna and I have been really struggling to find time uh, between Christmas and New Year's and With my current job, I'm on call pretty much every weekend, at least Friday, if not Friday and Saturday, and it's been making podcasting and recording and editing really, really difficult. Um, So I'm hoping that 
in the new year, there's rumors that we're not going to be on call anymore. So that should make things a bit easier. Um, and then also with the holidays dying down, I think we can get back on a more normal schedule. Um, we are still moving forward with releasing bi-weekly, so you won't see weekly posts anymore. They're going to be bi-weekly episodes, and that's just to keep Jenna and I sane, because weekly episodes are really, really difficult um, to release. And when you're releasing content that regularly, I personally feel like the quality of our content kind of takes a hit in order to uh, live up to the quantity that we're trying to release. So... Um, in order to preserve the quality and make sure that what we're posting is is really good and we've had um, ample time to research and prepare, we're going to be doing bi-weekly. Um, for Patreon subscribers, we're going to do some releases um, once a month of some bonus content. Not 100% sure what that's going to look like. I don't know if we're going to do a full-length episode, if we'll do some mini-episodes each month or what the plan is. But expect to see that starting this month. And then the other announcement that I wanted to share with everybody, everybody that's listening live right now already knows, but I'm sure that the listeners abroad don't know. Um, I just found out in November that I am pregnant. So that's been another reason that recording has been super difficult. I'm not feeling the best I've ever felt in my life. So um, sleeping has been super difficult and it's probably only going to get worse. So that's been something that has been a bit difficult um, and more of a challenge in terms of recording, but I'm kind of approaching the end of the first trimester here shortly, um, and I'm hoping the second trimester will be a bit easier. So with that being said, I'm thinking starting this month and next that Jenna and I will be able to release more regularly. So just wanted to get all of that out there for everybody. And I'll be on standby if needed. <laughs> Which is super helpful because it's been tough with COVID. And right now it sounds like COVID's kind of only getting worse everywhere. So we just want to make sure with me being pregnant as well that we're being as safe as we can be. Um, and the current situation is making that very difficult for us. So bear with us if we miss a week here or there. Um, just know that we have every intention to release as regularly as possible. But... Um, it can be a bit difficult given the personal circumstances. So, yeah, yeah, but I hope everybody understands, and it we're doing our best to stay as regularly as as we can, um, and make sure that we guys we get you guys, uh, you know, the best episodes that we can. So, uh, appreciate everybody's patience on this. Awesome. Well, I kind of want to jump in. Um, my case is not really like a traditional true crime case. I don't really think anybody is um, positive of exactly what happened. This one is a bit more of a mystery. We've got a general idea of what transpired on this day, but we don't really have any um, hard proof for how it transpired or why it happened. So it's kind of why I like it. Um, and it's more of a popular case, so anybody that is uh, really involved in true crime has listened to a bunch of podcasts, you probably have heard of this. So this is the story of the Yuba County Five. Um, it's, like I said, more of a mystery. Um, and I don't know that there's really any true crime involved here. Investigators believe that these five men were um, subjected to some element of foul play, but nobody has any idea what that might have been. So I'm just going to kind of jump in here. 
So the Yuba County Five consists of five young men. Um, Four of them had been friends for quite some time. These four boys were considered studs of the community. Um, And something interesting about this case is all five of the men involved have some kind of physical or mental or both impairment. So these men were a bit different in their community. They suffered from pretty severe um, mental disabilities. Only two of the men even were able to obtain driver's licenses, um, and that was pretty difficult for them to achieve in the first place. Um, They functioned fairly normally given the circumstances. Most of these men have all held jobs. Some of them have been in the armed services at one point or another. So they were pretty upstanding members of their community. Um, They were very athletic young men. They loved basketball. Um, And four of the five had been friends for quite some time. So um, they were pretty well known in the community and everybody really liked them. And so... It's back in the 1970s that a lot of this transpires, Um, and back during this time in the 70s, there wasn't a ton that was known about mental impairments. Um, None of the boys really had even gotten a formal diagnosis, at least in the the group of four. So the four men consist of Jack Madruga, Ted Weeher, Jack Hewitt, and Bill Sterling. So like I said, in the local community, they were really well known, um, and even the police and investigators that go on to investigate the case, they um, they were noted as kind of saying, like, none of these boys had ever been involved in any problems. We never had them staying out too late. We never needed to, you know, escort them home. They were really upstanding young men, um, and that's kind of what makes part of this story so sad is it really devastated the local community. Mm-hmm. So... I kind of want to share about each of these young men. So Madruga, he had worked as a dishwasher at one point. He even helped one of the other boys get a job at that same place. So his family didn't really consider him to be truly mentally impaired. They kind of just described him as a little bit slower than the average person. So maybe socially and in his decision making, um, sometimes it could take him a bit longer to get to the conclusion. But um, other than that, he was a pretty normal guy. He was really sociable. He had a lot of friends and he was one of the young men that was very athletic. Hmm. So Madruga, he was a 30 year old young man and he was actually one of the only um, boys that was able to get a driver's license. So he had a 1969 Mercury, and it was his prized possession. Um, The family kind of says, like, he babied his car a lot, and it was very important to him. Um, And that aspect becomes important a little bit later. It sounds like for the most part, he had a fairly normal upbringing. Yep, exactly. Besides maybe having just a little bit uh, slower um, mental capacity. It sounds like for the most part, he was a... A normal young adult. Definitely. So we've also got 32-year-old, I want to say it's his last name is Weeher. Um, it's like W-E-I-H-E-R. Um, so I'm, if I'm saying that wrong, I apologize. But Weeher was sociable and he loved meeting people. Um, his family described him, and it's kind of sad, like the way that their families describe them. It sounds kind of sad. I guess I don't know if you're being interviewed, how else you say things like this. But they kind of described him as not really having the most common sense. Um, So 
in a normal situation, you know, in an emergency, um, there are conclusions that maybe the average person would come to pretty quickly, and we heard did not reach those conclusions very quickly. They even had an incident at one point. Um, I don't know if he was a teenager or a young adult, but somehow their house got set on fire, and everybody in the family is working on kind of getting out of the home, and like they're panicking, and everybody's trying to get out, and he's just laying in his bed and like staring up at the ceiling. And so, yeah, one of the brothers literally had to, like, break back into the home and, like, physically drag him out. And he just didn't see a single problem with this at all. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of important to note things like this because this story involves a bit of an emergency. And so in foreign, like, in terms of context, if you've got a group of young men that maybe don't hold up super well in an emergency, that's really important to the story. So... I will say that if I was interviewed or if my family was interviewed about something I did and they said that I didn't have a lot of common sense that I don't know if I'd be the happiest. So, yeah, that's but fair. <laughs> I wasn't so sure about it. And then hearing your stories that that makes sense, though. Yeah. And I, I am a little bit familiar on the story. And so I think this will kind of um, this detail will come up again yeah, in the story. Definitely. So. So that's two of the young men. We've also got 29-year-old Sterling. So Sterling lived with his parents as well, and he received a weekly allowance from his family. At one point, he had been in the United States Air Force, but, and this is a direct quote from an article that I read, his mother, quote, made him quit after discovering airmen routinely got him drunk to steal his money. So um, socially, maybe Sterling was a little bit more forgiving than most and maybe not quite as observant as the average person, um, especially under the influence of alcohol. So his mother legitimately made him leave the Air Force because she just didn't feel like it was a good situation for him. And he came back home. So, yeah. I'm just imagining him calling his mom all the time, asking for money. Yeah. She goes, what the hell happened? Well, I got drunk and I woke up and all my money was gone. I don't know. I don't know what happened. It's kind of sad because it's like, I like it's infuriating to hear people like taking advantage of somebody, maybe not as well off or maybe as intelligent. But um, I want to shout out to the mom for intervening and sure. <laughs> removing him from that situation. Um, so that's the third young man. And then we also have 24 year old Hewitt. He was the fourth boy in this little troop. Um, sources consider him to be the most severely handicapped than the others. Um, he did not like being away from home for a very long time. Um, he did not have a job. He did not have a driver's license. Um, and he was a little bit more um, challenged socially. Um, but since all the other boys, you know, they've dealt with their own problems and they struggle in their own ways, they kind of invite him into the group as well, and he's kind of able to thrive through sports and things like that as well, which is kind of like a really beautiful, like, you know, idea here. We've got all these young boys that maybe aren't as gifted as some, but they are all able to kind of find friendship among each other. Um, and then we have the fifth member of this little gang, and he's a little bit different from the rest. So all of the other four boys, it was pretty obvious that they were... Um, suffering either mentally or physically pretty early on in their childhoods it was apparent to his their parents that they might be disabled um, and so they were kind of raised as such 
Um, our last guy, Gary Mathias, he was 25 years old at the time of this story, and he had grown up seemingly normal, for lack of a better way to put it, um, throughout most of his life. So he kind of joined the group a little bit later in life as a young adult. I want to say that he met the rest of the four when he was 23. Um, and Gary had used drugs through a lot of his adolescence. And as a consequence of that, he was suffering mentally as well. Um, but it seemed like Gary, he may have caused some brain damage in his drug usage, but he was otherwise normal, for a lack of a better way to put it. Um, something he did suffer with that's different from the other young men is mental illness, which some believe is also a result of his pretty extensive drug usage. Um, so he had spent some time in and out of mental hospitals, and just as a result of his um, young adulthood, he was also suffering and, you know, struggled socially. So I think he kind of found his way into this group of friends as well and kind of like felt at home here. So let that be a lesson to you kids. Yeah, seriously. Drugs can make you dumb. No, seriously. Like, and the drugs that they were talking about him using were like not light drugs, like like huffing paint or yeah you know and like methamphetamines and stuff stuff so. that will literally kill your brain yeah so it sounds like so of the five boys four of them were a bit slow or had some mental you know handicaps and then there was him yeah who kind of made himself handicapped yeah it seems like pretty so. much so the night that all this kind of transpires it's february 24th and it's 1978 so madruga he was the first boy we talked about um, as with the rest of the boys, they were all huge basketball fans. Madruga, Madruga, I'm sorry, was the one that had a car, and there was a nearby basketball game going on that night at California State University, and the five of them decided they were not going to miss this basketball game. So the thing is, is like, when you consider this group of young men, um, yes, they are mentally impaired, but we had a very different idea of what that looked like back in the 1970s. Um, and so they they were given um, pretty readily like a certain level of responsibility and trust and things along those lines. So some people kind of hear this story and they think of a group of mentally impaired young men going to a basketball game alone and that kind of makes us cringe a little bit and just out of worry. But for the most part, the parents that were interviewed were like, no, like, this is the stuff they did all the time. Like, yeah. yes, they were mentally impaired, but they were literally, like, in their 20s and 30s. They were adults. Half of them had jobs. You know, two of them had driver's licenses. Like, and they were fully functional. So um, this was something that they did pretty regularly. And so when they came to their parents and said, hey, we want to go to this basketball game. Um, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Yeah. They it, weren't worried or really yeah it was like um okay be careful be home by this time but yeah sure that sounds great yeah. so they all pile into madruga's 1969 mercury and they start the 50 mile drive to the campus so around 10 p.m that night the game ends and their favorite team had won so you've got to imagine like we've got this pack of young men they are very social and athletic guys and their basketball team just won a big game so i mean they're walking out of this basketball court rowdy they're yelling they're all high-fiving they pile back into the mercury and they start the drive back home so as they start kind of going home you know they need to stop at the gas station they want to get drinks and snacks and 
they actually kind of annoyed the gas station attendant because she was literally like 10 minutes from closing. And then this huge group of five men get out of their Mercury. They start coming into the gas station. Probably loud and excited and jumping around. Exactly. And I picture this like, I picture a girl with like her hair and a bun on top of her head, like chewing bubble gum, just sitting there like with that look on her face of like, please get the hell out of here. Yeah. 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 So that's kind of the the scene that we've got. We've got them on their way home. The game's over. They're super elated. They stop at the gas station. They're seen there. Um, and then we presume that they start making the trek home. So this same night, we have a very, very different situation happening in the same general area. So we've got another man who's having a very different evening than these boys. His name is Joe Jones, and he was driving his Volkswagen down a mountain road, um, which is located in the Plumas National Forest. And as he's driving down this mountain road, his car gets stuck on the snow because, you know, even if it is California that we're talking about, one part of California is going to be very temperate, but the Sierra Nevadas could be literally just piling down snow. Yes. So... To talk about like the geography here, where the men are stopping off at the gas station and where this guy is having snow problems is really only a matter of like, I want to say 50 miles. Um, It's just so happens that this guy is kind of up this mountainous road and it kind of raises an altitude and there's kind of a blizzard going on this night. So this guy is literally having the worst possible day I think I can imagine. So he's driving down the road. He gets kind of stuck in the snow, so he begrudgingly gets out of his car and starts pushing, and he starts having a fucking heart attack, like literally on the side of the road in the dark. <laughs> it's cold. It's, it's snow out. Yeah, it's literally bl- a blizzard outside. So his chest is pounding. Uh, he's stuck in the snow. He doesn't even really have that much gas. Um, it's a blizzard, and he's like, I'm going to fucking die on the side of the road. Like, this is not how I wanted to go out. So he kind of like gets back in his car to warm up a little bit. And he is like quoted as saying like, literally I was in excruciating pain at this point. There was just like, what was I supposed to do about this problem? So he kind of like gets back in his car, turns it on and like runs the heater so that he can kind of warm back up. And he kind of like lays back in the driver's seat and is kind of contemplating like what his next move is going to be. And he's kind of thinking like, you know, this is, people live up here, like, somebody could drive by. So, sure enough, someone does end up driving by, he sees the headlights, and when he sits up and looks, and the way I imagine this is, like, he's on the side of the road on one side, and this other car is maybe on the other side of the road coming towards him, and when he sits up, he realizes that the car is not actually coming towards him at all, it's also pulled off on the side of the road, and so he's thinking, like, oh shit, like I'll get out of the car and I'll like flag them down and they'll come help me. So he gets out of the car, he starts yelling for help, but mm, they don't respond. And as he shines his headlights onto their car, he sees a group of young men with a woman in the car and a baby. And he could be misremembering this because he is in excruciating pain. And I think, I might be mistaken, But I think at this point, he's been on the side of the road for like six hours. Oh, wow. So it's not a great night. It's also the middle of the night. So, But he does remember seeing a vehicle on the side of the road with a group of young men in it, as well as the woman and the baby. So 
he starts trying to flag them down, but for whatever reason, like, nobody acknowledges him. And then the headlights on the vehicle go out. And so he's confused and delirious and in pain. He kind of gets back in his vehicle and kind of just, like, observes, like, what's going on. And he kind of sees, like, flashlights. Like, it looks like moving lights, like, in the forest. And he just remembers being super confused by this, not understanding why nobody was helping him. So hours go by, and our pal, Shones, he feels like his chest is kind of getting a little bit better. So he decides, like, fuck this, I'm going to get out. I'm just going to go walk down the mountain. It's like an eight-mile walk, and there's, like, a lodge at the bottom. And so he's like, maybe somebody's there, or at least I could, like, break in, you know? like Yeah. yeah. So he starts his eight-mile walk after his mild heart attack. and It's exactly what you need after having a heart attack. Yeah, it's more like physical, physical activity. Work. Yeah. So during his trek, he passes by a 1969 Mercury on the side of the road in the general direction of where he had seen people. Interesting. And no one is inside. So all of this is starting to kind of look really suspicious. Um, The next morning, February 25th, all five pairs of parents wake up to terrible news. None of the young men had returned back home. They were nowhere to be found. So it's... A lot of questions right here at the beginning, like, the mountainous road that all this transpired on is in the complete opposite direction of the way home. So I think I remember it being described on Crime Junkies podcast at one point, where um, Ashley Flowers kind of explained they basically were at a point where they could have went west towards home, or they could have went east up this mountain road, and they deliberately decided to go east. Um, so it's kind of strange. A lot of people are wondering, is the woman and the baby real? Did she need a ride home? And they offered to bring her home and then they got stuck. Um, the family was interviewed, like of all of these young men, and they tried to determine if anybody knew anyone in that area. Um, and pretty much everybody said no. Um, the only credible bit of information is that one of the young men had actually I think the family owned like a maybe like a cabin or like a campground or something up in that general direction but like his family said he literally hated camping like he hated it so much he would never go up there that's part of the mystery it seems like is I mean we're talking about like a mountain mountainous area with lots of snow you know so it's like what did they even you know like what was the purpose of going up there like there was literally nothing you know and and this kind of brings up the the question of you know when we were talking about the um the men that you know maybe they didn't have the most common sense but it's like does that go into play here were they did they feel like they had that um you know they had no common sense that maybe they were just excited and wanted to go driving around or yeah. what. So and this is kind of the interesting part. They like, you kind of mentioned like the common sense aspect and it's kind of weird. Cause I feel like if you got all five of them in a group, like, and I hate for this to sound the way that it's going to sound, but I feel like between the five of them, at least somebody would have somebody would, would have speak enough. out and go, maybe this isn't the best thing to do. Yeah. Especially Gary. Like that's my big thing is like Gary wasn't like traditionally mentally impaired he was more mentally ill, which was a bit different. Like his biggest disability was the fact that he was kind of like had mental illness struggles and things like that. 
And so you'd think that him of all people would be like, what the hell are we doing? This doesn't make sense. Which leads some people to believe that maybe Gary played some part in this in maybe he wanted to go up there. Maybe he knew somebody up there. And so that's something that's discussed a lot, which is like a whole can of worms in itself. Yeah. And one thing to keep in mind too is, you know, this is in the late seventies. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, vehicles back then, the, the vast majority of vehicles back then were rear wheel drive, which we all know is not great in the snow whatsoever. No, God so no. most people, you know, would, you would think that they would not want to travel. Well, and the thing know. is, is they say that Madruga, he loved his car so much. And so people are like his family, they were one of the first people to believe foul play was kind of at play here. Because they said there's no way in hell he would take his car up into the mountains. Like, absolutely not. Snowy mountains, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So, shortly after the boys disappear, the local police obviously begin searching the area for signs of them. The problem is it's the end of February, and it's the Sierra Nevada mountains. So, they first start focusing on the route that they should have taken home. But there's obviously no sign of them because we know that they didn't take this route. So... A few days later, investigators were told about a sighting in Plumas National Forest. A forest ranger had also found the Mercury parked alongside the Oroville-Quincy Road on February 25th. At the time, the ranger didn't really think that it was strange since people traveled that way often and people had car troubles all the time. So typically when they would find cars, nobody would be in them because somebody had come and picked them up or given them a ride. So he just kind of brushed it off. Once he got back down the mountain and he saw the missing persons bulletin, he realized that his sighting was very important. So police quickly find evidence inside the Mercury that indicates that the boys were inside of the vehicle, all of them. So there were leftover wrappers, there were cartons and cans from the basketball game and the trip to the gas station after. While finding the car should have helped them answer questions, really all it did was create a ton more. So investigators asked the family, like we talked about earlier, you know, can you think of any reason why they would have gone up here? Um, the only person that they could determine maybe knew anyone in that direction was Gary Mathias. Um, he had, I think, an acquaintance that could, like, you basically could have gotten to their house by going that way. But it's not really a very strong lead and nobody really takes it that seriously. Pretty much everyone else says no. I don't know why they would have gone there. So another mystery is why would the boys not be inside the vehicle? Why would they have left their car on the side of the road? And why would all five of them agree that leaving the vehicle there off the side of the road was a good idea? Yeah, that's like emergency 101. Like if you break down, you know, stay with your vehicle, you know, especially if you're on a road, because at some point somebody will you know, come around again. Exactly. Even if it takes until morning, like you're not going to die, especially if you're inside of the vehicle. So it kind of becomes clear to family and investigators that there's some kind of foul play going on here. The entire case just doesn't really make sense. But unfortunately, due to the weather in the local area, police are unable to search for any bodies or further evidence at the time. Even the snowcats that were brought up um, they're still getting stuck in the snow because it's just so heavy, and ultimately the search is called off altogether. So in June of 1979, 
a group of motorcyclists stopped by a trailer in the woods that was maintained by Forest Service. So in national forests, this is a pretty common concept. Um, forest rangers spend a lot of time out literally in the wilderness, and it's really important that they have these designated trailers that have um, a food source, they have a source of heat, um, so that that way if for a any- shelter. Shelter, exactly. Um, so that way if any for any reason something happens, or if anyone else needs it, um, it's there. And so there are tons of these all over um, national forests in the United States. So this specific trailer was about 20 miles from where the boys' mercury had been found. One of the windows on the trailer had been broken in, and when they entered, this group was overcome by the smell of human decomposition. So as it turns out, there was a decaying body inside the service trailer, and it was that of Ted Weeher. So the discovery of the first body and the melting of most of the snow by June, searchers returned to the mountain region to begin the search again. So they started out searching the road between the service trailer where Ted was found and the vehicle. Here, they found the remains of Madruga and Sterling. So Sterling's body had been partially eaten by animals. But autopsies revealed that they both had likely died from exposure to the elements, hypothermia. Okay. So they say that the way that it's starting to look based on these first three bodies is that whether the men really had car trouble, whether they thought they had car trouble, they pulled off to the side of the road. The five of them decided that leaving the vehicle was the best choice here for whatever reason. Two of the five perished on the way to the service trailer, whether it was because they got too cold. We know that I think one of the boys forgot their winter coat that day, so that could be part of it. Uh, maybe some were better dressed than others. It seems like either Madruga or Sterling had perished first, and then the second boy had refused to leave them there. And so he likely had succumbed to the same fate. So the other three men must have continued on to the trailer. So um, the search kind of continues for the remaining boys, and unfortunately, um, one of the boys' own father is involved in the search, and they end up finding the backbone uh, spine to one of the young men in the vegetation nearby. And this was about two miles northeast of the trailer, which was kind of strange because it was not between the car and the trailer. It was kind of off outside right. of that. So some people wonder maybe he had gone out looking for something. Um, people who are about to succumb to hypothermia often have a um, depreciation of their mental capabilities. They'll some, do things that like don't make sense. Yeah, there's um, a lot of cases in people who hike Mount Everest that end up succumbing to hypothermia, who one of the most notable symptoms of hypothermia and exposure is feeling really, really hot. And so even though you're literally about to die from freezing, you get this overwhelming sense that you're like too hot. And so a lot of people that are found having died from hypothermia are like stark naked because they rip taken... all their clothes off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, it sounds like if they just found a, a, you know, part of his spine that sounds like he succumbed possibly and then animals got to him and yeah. picked him clean. Yep. That's kind of what it seems like. So while this is all going on and they're finding all these different bodies, the investigators are processing the evidence in the trailer, which is where Ted Weeher's body was first found. So his autopsy was pretty interesting. It also revealed that he died from a combination of starvation and hypothermia. He had lost nearly half of his body weight, and he had um, a pretty 
um, crazy amount of facial hair still, which they were able to utilize to determine how long he had been alive in the trailer, and it was for at least 13 weeks. Wow. Yeah. And the strangest part we haven't even gotten to yet, and that's that this service trailer was more of like an encampment that consisted of a service trailer and a couple of other sheds on the property. Um, So within the service trailer itself, there were supplies to start a fire, and yet nobody had started a fire. There was matches, there was kindling, and there was a bunch of paperback novels that were put there deliberately to be able to start a fire. But whether it was because of the mental impairment or what, a fire was never started. Mm. Um, So nearby, um, actually, before that, in that same trailer, there was heavy clothing for winter weather that could have been used to keep the young men warm, but it was still tucked away, neatly folded, never having been touched. Hmm, That's interesting. That was super weird. So there's also one of those storage sheds nearby that had dozens of cans that were meant, you know, to um, give people food if they were lost out there. So the cans had been open, all 12 of them, and Ted or whoever had eaten them, But that same shed also had a locker full of dehydrated food, and it was enough food to keep all five of the men alive for over a year, and none of it had been touched. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. So there was a second shed nearby. This one I can kind of understand. This shed contained a butane tank with a valve, and if the valve had been turned, it would have initiated the trailer's heating system. So the trailer was literally heated with, like, an HVAC system of sorts. But considering, you know, the mental capacity of the men, even if I was lost out there, I don't know that I would know to even consider turning valves on butane tanks. Right. So another thing that was kind of strange is we mentioned that the motorcyclists that found the shed Um, that a window had been smashed in order to gain access. So the young men must have smashed that window to get into the trailer, and nobody had even covered up the hole. So, like, wind and snow had been blowing in, like, the whole season, and, like, nobody even, like, put a shirt or something over it, Mm -hmm. which was super weird. So for some people, this is pretty strange, maybe suspicious even, um, but even Weher's own family members kind of pointed to the lack of common sense that we had discussed earlier. Yeah, yeah, and that makes makes sense. I mean, it's it's hard because there's so many different red flags here where yeah. we're like, why would they do that? Why would they do that? So. Mm-hmm. It's pretty strange. Like another weird thing about Weher's body in general was that he wasn't wearing any shoes, um, and his own tennis shoes. Actually, no. Sorry, go back. So Weher wasn't wearing any shoes. But Gary Mathias's white tennis shoes were inside the service trailer. So that led investigators to believe that Ted, he had wear- been wearing leather shoes that day. And it looks like Gary probably took his leather shoes maybe after he passed away and then left his own white tennis shoes there in the service trailer because mm. the leather ones were probably more durable. So kind of an interesting fact, it led police to believe that Gary Mathias was alive a lot longer than the rest of the young men. Seems like a, a weird thing to do when, you know, like that would be like a common sense thing yeah. to do, but then everything else was missed. Yeah, so, so like you you realize you need to take the leather shoes because they're stronger, but you don't eat the 12 months worth of dehydrated food. Right. It's, it's a super weird case. So 
Further investigation obviously shows that Weher had not been alone in the trailer. Matthias and even possibly Hewitt, um, and kind of to fill everybody in who maybe doesn't remember all these names, Hewitt was considered the most mentally impaired of the group. So some believe that even Hewitt may have been inside the trailer with them. So kind of like we talked about, investigators found Matthias's tennis shoes in there, and the cans had been opened with a military-issued can opener, and this is only something that Matthias or Madruga would have known how to use. Because they were in the military. Exactly. And we know that Matthias, or sorry, we know Madruga didn't even make it to the service trailer. Hmm. So that only leaves one possible solution. So the search for further evidence and Matthias's body continued into that summer. However, after a very lengthy and costly search, Matthias's body is never found. So even after knowing that four of the five men had died out there in the woods, investigators cannot explain how those deaths even came to be. No one knows why the men veered so far off the course home after the basketball game. No one knows if the sighting with the woman and the baby was truly real. And if it was, why was a woman and a baby with them in the first place? So, and still to this day, nobody knows where Matthias has gone to. So the family of the victims firmly believe that something led the boys off their path. They feel confident that at least four of the boys would have never gone up that mountain of their own accord. One family member is even quoted as saying, Madruga was either tricked or threatened. And that's from a Mental Floss article that I found. So others believe that Matthias may have had something to do with the deaths. Many in the local area felt that it was odd that somebody like him would be hanging around with the other four boys, considering his disabilities were very, very different from the other four. So I kind of wanted to talk about like who was Gary Matthias and really why was he hanging around them? So Gary Matthias was considered the outlier among the group of boys, and we've kind of already touched on it a bit here. So while the others clearly had mental disabilities early in life, like we talked about, Matthias did not start out that way. It wasn't until high school that he was first placed in a psychiatric ward due to a bad trip on drugs. So he continued to abuse drugs during his service in the U.S. Army, and he was ultimately discharged for paranoid schizophrenia. Mm. This was after he went AWOL. So he just straight up ditched. They found him. He was, like, talking all kinds of crazy things that nobody understood. And so they were like, yeah, like, you need to get out. So paranoid schizophrenia mixed with drugs is probably not a good combo. Yeah, and some people wonder if the drugs could have induced the schizophrenia in the first place. So later that same month after being discharged, Matthias was allegedly watching TV at his cousin's house. His cousin's wife was fast asleep in another room due to a medication that she was taking for an illness. It made her very, very tired. So the cousin left the room to go to the bathroom. When he came back, he is quoted as saying, Matthias was straddling his wife and groping her breasts. When he asked her, um, I imagine, what the hell are you doing? Matthias allegedly replied that he wanted to kiss her. His cousin ultimately called the cops, he was arrested, and he pled guilty. Wow. So eight months later, he's out of um, jail, and it's December of that same year, and he had dropped by the home of a couple that he had known at some point in his past. And why he goes there, we don't know, but he shows up high on meth, and the couple says he was acting super strange and talking about how he like wanted to stab somebody. Um, and they were kind of, like, trying to be nice and talk him down and, like, get him to chill the fuck out. And they alleged that he turned towards their three-year-old daughter and said, 
I thought I'd kill you once. Guess I'll have to actually do it. To the three-year-old girl. Wow. So this couple calls the police, and after this arrest, he ends up getting out again, and he has multiple other run-ins with the law. So he ends up getting charged with disturbing the peace, suspicion of grand theft auto, and all kinds of other charges. So ultimately, he becomes very well-known by law enforcement in the Yuba County area. And it seems that the constant use of drugs in his adolescence and young adulthood had a lasting effect on his brain and mental capacity. He spent some more time in his adulthood in a mental hospital, but ended up literally breaking out and hitchhiking back to his hometown. So eventually, years down the line, he does end up straightening out. Um, I don't know if it's like a trip to a mental hospital that does it or what goes on, but he ends up taking his medication that is prescribed to him routinely. He ends up getting a job and he's like doing okay. okay. And at this point is when he meets the four other boys and starts hanging out with them. So from this point on, as well as the two years leading up to his disappearance, he actually doesn't have any more run-ins with the law, and it kind of seems like he might be on the straight and narrow finally. So many of the four boys' parents were not comfortable with Matthias hanging around their family members. Even though most of them didn't even know about his criminal record, he gave off a vibe that made people uneasy. Yeah. So it seemed like Matthias was often the one to suggest places to go or things for the group to do. And so I've heard in the Crime Junkies podcast and based on some articles I've read, there are some people that get this idea of like Matthias maybe not being the best guy and maybe not making friends particularly easily, but then finding this group of maybe, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, Finding this group of young men that are impressionable and that he can boss around really easily, that maybe even look up to him because he is rather intelligent comparatively. Um, he has a driver's license. He, you know, he's he's got these experiences and he's, yeah. you know, lived and for lack of a better way to put it. And so some people kind of wonder if maybe this was an unhealthy relationship. It, yeah, it, it kind of sounds like it. Like, um, you know, these close-knit group of friends, you know, four friends, they most likely had struggled to, you know, to fit in with yeah. a normal crowd, you know, and to find, you know, um, kids when they were younger, their age, that, you know, they wanted to hang out with them. It was probably really difficult. to So to have this person come out, and you know like have all these cool, be around them. yeah yeah wants to hang out with them has all these experiences these cool stories about being in jail and like meeting these people yeah and, and like, they've probably never been around this before you yeah. know so it's probably you know something that and maybe even the fact that the parents don't like him it's kind of like cool because he's like yeah. this bad you know this, this bad, bad influence yeah like, mm -hmm. so and you know like granted i know that these aren't children but in some regards like the locals in the town literally refer to them as the boys yeah. and children. And there's even a police officer that goes on as saying like more should have been done to find those children. And yes, I say children because that's what they were. And so it's kind of hard. Like when you tell children not to hang out with somebody, what is the first reaction is yeah, you now wanna... they want to do it even more. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy. Like a lot of people speculate, um, 
did Gary actually pass away like out in the wilderness with the rest of them? Is it possible that maybe he was able to escape the mountains? And some people even wonder if maybe he's still alive right now. And then some of these theories even go further and suggest that maybe all of this, the disappearances in general, was Matthias's idea in the first place. Is it possible that he could have been the foul play that investigators were looking for back in 1979? So I found this article that I thought was really interesting. It says, the title is, From Out in the Cold, Were Four Mentally Disabled Men Set Up to Die in the California Woods? by Benny Engel. So it says, about three weeks after the boys went missing, a Yuba City woman named Debbie Lynn Reese picked up the telephone. Investigators said, she said hello on the line. And what the response was, was, I know where the missing five men are. And then it hung up. So the man called back the next day and said, I need help because I really hurt those guys bad. When she asked, who did you hurt? He replied, don't play dumb with me and hung up again. So there was one more call the next day. It's March 17th. And it says, those five guys are all dead. The man said, they're dead? Reese asked. They're all dead, he repeated. And then he hung up and Reese never heard from that man ever again. Hmm. That's coincidence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so it just kind of plays into that idea of like, there are a lot of people, it's kind of like middle of the road, honestly. A lot of people think that um, Gary Mathias deliberately led them up into the mountains. Maybe he thought it was funny. Maybe he thought it was going to be an adventure. Maybe there was really nothing um, nefarious about it. Maybe it was somewhat innocent and like, hey, let's go on a drive. But either way, a lot of people firmly believe that he had something to do with this. Um, and then it's pretty divided in the people that feel that Gary Mathias is still alive. Um, and then other people, including some investigators, believe that he probably died out there as well. They just haven't come across the body yet. Yeah, I mean, you look at some of the bodies, you know, for one, it took them a long time to be able to go and search for it. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the biggest issues, too, is it's up in the mountains. Yeah. There's snow. So if there's new snowfall, it's going to cover all the evidence. Mm -hmm. um, and with know, animals, like different yeah. body parts getting dragged, like. You know, we know that winter is hard on animals. And so anytime that there's any food. Yeah. That they're going to immediately pick it clean. You mm -hmm. know, the fact that they found one of the boys, just their spine. Exactly. You know, that tells you that you know, animals are constantly looking for something to eat. So it's, it's a lot of different mysteries here. And the fact that there's so many different, you know, possible variations that yeah. could have happened. And yet there's really not any sort of answer because, yeah. you know, of everything that transpired. So. Absolutely. And it's pretty crazy. Like the case is technically still open and investigators have said like, they really they know how the men died, but they don't know why. And until you know why, you can't really determine the manner of death. And so there's no way to know if it was, you know, foul play involved or what's going on because there's just not enough evidence. Yeah. The whole case is super crazy. And, like, it's one of those cases that after I listen to it, like, it still, like, crosses my mind every once in a while just thinking, like, what the hell could have happened to these guys? Like, and I think the thing that bothers me the most is just that really blatant decision, like the go left towards home or go right into the wilderness. 
and to have all five boys think go right into the wilderness was a good idea is pretty pretty crazy to me yeah yeah that one is uh that one is crazy i remember you talking to me about this a little bit and yeah just thinking like what what happened you know like why would they do that there's it's so many just like why why frustrating like not having answers with something like this because you really just want someone to tell you like oh it was because of this but it doesn't look like we're ever really going to get that so yeah. that is the story of the yuba county five okay now before we keep going i really really have to pee so we're gonna have to take a brief intermission so sorry Okay, sorry about that. Brief intermission when you're pregnant. You have to pee a lot, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I will begin mine, which um, I thought was kind of interesting. I'd never heard of of this. Technically, it's a mass murder. Um, and it was fairly recent, too, which I, I thought was very interesting. So I just kind of randomly stumbled upon it and kind of went down the rabbit hole. So this is about Marcus Wesson. And uh, this is about the the events that transpired on March twelfth, two thousand and four. Uh, so this basically as everything went down, this became the worst mass uh, mass murder of Fresno, California, which sounds kind of silly when you think that yeah. it's the worst mass murder of a city. But I mean, California is a big state with a lot of people. That's so, true. Uh, eventually. He was convicted on nine counts of first-degree murder and 14 sex crimes that Jesus. include uh, the rape and molestation of his underage uh, children. What the fuck? Yeah. So to kind of give some history, uh, Marcus was born on August 22nd, 1946 in Kansas. He was the oldest of four children, and he was born to Benjamin and Carrie Wesson. So he was raised as a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And for those of you that are not familiar with this, it's kind of a Protestant Christian denomination. Uh, they consider Saturday to be the seventh day of the Sabbath, is that Saturday is the last day of the week, um, which sounds silly, but it sort of makes sense. Um, they do put a lot of emphasis on diet and health, uh, including following kosher and food laws, uh, and they kind of lead a very strict Christian lifestyle. Are they like fundamentalists or not quite that? Extreme? You know, I'm not sure exactly. I'd have to dive a little bit more into that, but I can tell you that his mother was kind of a religious nut job oh, and good. it kind of points towards that maybe, you know, being a part of this church could have caused you know, some issues. Of exactly. Some kind. So hmm. uh, she was said to give her own Bible lessons and that if he did not pay attention or he did not complete his assignments that she would whip him with an electrical cord. Great woman. So, so already starting off on the right foot. His father, on the other hand, was the complete opposite and was an alcoholic and a child abuser. Uh, there was um, there was stories of him actually flirting with his own kids while he was drunk. Ew. sounds kind of creepy. Uh, and this doesn't necessarily... Um, lead to any evidence of what happened but there was uh some people did come out and say that he did have some some homosexual tendencies uh one old friend actually came out and said that he had paid him 50 dollars to give him oral sex what and so already with the drinking and you know these issues uh, i'm guessing a lot of this was put onto his children yeah definitely so already great between both mom and father 
a lot of issues growing up. Eventually, the father of Benjamin ended up just straight up leaving. He abandoned his kids. Jesus. um, Not the most normal childhood. No, no, and definitely not a great way to, you know, to start out in society. Yeah. So um, when uh, Marcus was older, you know, he went through school normally, at, at least this is what people say when they were, they interviewed about him, is that he seemed fairly normal. Uh, he ended up dropping out of high school. He didn't have enough credits to graduate. So he immediately joined the army and served two years from 1966 to 1968 in Europe. Uh, and then he left. So after he came back, he met a lady named Rosemary Solario. And uh, the interesting thing about Rosemary is she was married to oh. an abusive husband. So oh, okay. eventually uh, she gets the courage to leave and they get a place together. And Rosemary has eight children. So Eight? Eight children. Good God. Yeah. So after this, Rosemary ends up getting pregnant. Um, Again? Yeah, with Marcus's kid this time. Oh, okay. So Marcus has his first child, a boy, with Rosemary. So between this, Rosemary has a young daughter named Elizabeth, who at the time uh, she was eight, Marcus starts taking a fancy to her and starts basically grooming her. And this is like his stepdaughter? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, uh, and like I said, she was eight at the time. Yeah, fuck this dude. So, basically, um, with Marcus's mother kind of being this religious, you know, nut, uh, a lot of that ended up imprinting onto Marcus. Mm -hmm. So, he is, considers himself a very religious person. And so, he starts telling Elizabeth as he's grooming her that, that the Lord has chosen her and that she's special and that she belongs to Marcus. And, uh, so this goes on for a long time, uh, and eventually he, uh, when she is nine, I believe, they have a kind of uh, behind-the-scenes ceremony where he marries her. Okay, what the hell's going on here? Yeah, so eventually she uh, she is old enough in the state of California that he legally marries her when she's 15, and not just four months later, uh, she has his baby. So she was already technically pregnant before they were what legally married. What the hell? Uh, so all in all, she has, and this is kind of mixed because I, I saw different um, or several different sources, but she has between 9 and 11 kids with him by the time she's 26. So she's basically pregnant the whole time that they're together. So at this time, uh, the family is uh, moving all over California. Uh, Elizabeth one of her sisters, uh, who is uh, just completely um, addicted to hard drugs, drops off her seven children and says oh, she can't God. handle them. And so this family of about 16 is moving all over the place. Uh, and they're moving to different parts in California. Uh, while they're leaving this kind of nomadic lifestyle, they're extremely poor. They're living in vacant homes. Uh, at one point, they were living in a tent, and then at another point, uh, Marcus had bought a school bus and converted it to kind of a makeshift home. Oh, great. So at this time, they're living off of welfare and food stamps. Uh, a lot of people at this time that knew the family kind of said that Marcus knew how to kind of work the system. 
So yeah. he knew how to do kind of odds and end jobs that were under the radar where he could collect welfare, you know, because we know that you can't work and collect welfare at the same time. So, yeah. Um, the kids that were interviewed said that they led a fairly normal lifestyle, it seems, but at the same time, several people said they saw the kids digging through trash cans for scraps um, and that they were starving constantly. They lived in dirty houses, um, you know, and at the same time, Marcus was seen going to McDonald's and different restaurants and eating food. Oh, that's so, great for him. Taking great care of his family. Jesus. Um, eventually in 1989, uh, it catches up with him and he's convicted of perjury and welfare fraud. But, uh, you know, all in all, what it seems like from looking from the outside in is that he's becoming kind of a cult leader. You know, if you're yeah. familiar with like Waco and all these, you know, mm -hmm. very much the same thing. The Lord is telling you that you need to be with me. Um, you know, so at this time, he is not grooming only Elizabeth, but several others. Uh, he begins, uh, or I should say, he does not allow them to go to normal school. So he tells uh, Rosemary that that he needs to homeschool all the kids. And so he starts homeschooling them and creating his own lessons from a homemade Bible that he made that says that Jesus is a vampire. Oh my. Yeah. And telling them that he is like a God or a Messiah. So he actually tells the kids that they need to call him master and Lord. And yeah, so this is, this is really, this really dude's up. like straight up cuckoo bananas. Yeah. Like... So at this time, he's also having sexual relations with all these kids. So he is during these lessons, he is teaching them different sexual um, you know, things like how to give oral sex and, and all this. So he eventually, it starts out with, you know, this is, this is rough. And, you know, I'm letting everybody know that, uh, you know, this is disgusting, but, you know, he eventually starts out with simple molestation, you know, of groping and then, you know, teaching them things to do and then full on having sex with them. So it eventually transpires that he gets all of them pregnant at some point and they fathered children of his. Uh, and so this is, you know, like I said, this is difficult to go, to go through. But as, you know, these, these kids, you know, because originally they were kids as they're growing up, he's teaching them, you know, that society is bad. You don't talk to people. The police are the devil that you don't tell anybody what's going on here. You know, fuck? that I'm the only one that can protect you. You can't go anywhere. You know, I have the money that will keep us alive and I'm the one that can get you food and all this. So he's just screwing these kids up as they're growing up. He eventually separates the kids, um, the, the males and the females. So he knows that, you know, uh, that, you know, these, these kids have no, you know, they're not around kids their own age besides each other. And so things are going to happen. So he separates them to keep any sort of, you know, uh, confusion or uh, curiosity from happening. So one of the sons, you know, and, and while this is going on, you know, he's also abusing them physically too. So yeah. one of the sons recounts the time that he snuck a spoonful of peanut butter and Marcus beat him for 30 days. Jesus. Um, you know, so, um, so the five girls 
uh, at some point become pregnant with his children. So it is believed that he fathered at least 18 children between his daughters, his nieces, and Elizabeth. So at, at some point, the kids get older, and he allows the kids to get jobs, but he makes them swear that they will not tell anybody or that something will happen. And when they work, he gets to be in control of their finances. So ultimately, he takes their paychecks from them. And you can tell with some of the interviews from the kids after everything that, you know, they, for the most part, they thought that was fairly normal. Like, uh, this entire time, the the father's brainwashing them, telling them how good he is, and that he used to be super high up in all these different positions. And so they think that their dad slash husband, you know, is just perfect. You know, the Lord said that they should be with him and that he's in control and he will keep them safe. I mean, this is, I mean, it's as fucked up as it sounds for us. Like this is how they grew up their entire lives. And this is what's normal to like life in any other way is considered abnormal for them. I mean, this as fucked up as it is, this is what they view as normal. Right. Right. So and one thing to keep in mind is, you know, as some of these kids are being born, he is also grooming these kids and having sex with them as well. So he's having this very incestuous relationship with everybody. So someone's considered a daughter and also, you know, uh, a mother. And it's, yeah, so it's, it's really messed up. And there's so many, you know, like I said, there's several children. I don't have all the names, but you know, well over a dozen. Jesus. So eventually, um, they moved to Fresno, uh, into a, it used to be an office, but it's converted into a home. So still not great, but it seems like this is kind of the best that they've had so far. So, you know, as I said, this is a mass murder. So we know that something's going to transpire. So a couple days before everything happens, uh, two of his nieces, their names are Ruby and Sophina, they get in an argument with Marcus and they basically have had enough. They realize what's going on and they're done with it. Yeah. So they get in an argument with Marcus and he basically had said that you leave, you're not coming back. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing you can do. Uh, you will not be able to take your children because uh, he had fathered children with each of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, once you leave, you're gone. So they leave and they eventually get some people and they come back and they're there to take the kids. Mm-hmm. So. Um, one of them, uh, Sophina, she actually runs into the house and grabs her seven-year-old son, Jonathan, and starts pulling him outside. Yeah. And her sister, uh, sister to Sophina, Rosa, is able to grab him and pull him back. And she takes him into one of the back rooms. Mm-hmm. So we have two of the, um, of the nieces that are out in the front yards now yelling mm-hmm. at Marcus, telling them that they need to let the kids go. People are hearing this, you know, this is, I mean, if you can imagine just people yelling, people are going, what's going on? Eventually the police are called. Yeah. Um, And so before the police are coming, uh, two of the uh, sisters slash, you know, mothers of these kids. Yeah. uh, Walk outside and start defending Marcus. And at one point, one of them actually points to Marcus's feet and tells the other two that they need to get down on their knees and then they need to ask for forgiveness from their master. What the fuck? Yeah. So eventually uh, the police show up, you know, and this is, you know, if looking, you know, we know that this is extremely 
you know, messed up, but the police have no idea. So mm -hmm. they think they're being called, you know, because this is based on the neighbors calling and the cops. And this is a child, you know, child um, uh, dispute that, or a regular domestic dispute. So there's not, you know, and this is in the poor area. So it's probably assumed that it's not going to be anything too crazy. Yeah. So when the police show up, Marcus comes outside, uh, or he, he kind of leans on his door frame and the police are not allowed into their house. There's not anything that. Yeah. You have to them, have a warrant, right? There's nothing that's showing them that there is some sort of violence going on or that somebody's being hurt. So they're really just asking Marcus what's going on. So Marcus, in, uh, you know, according to eyewitnesses, said that he was pretty much fairly calm and collective, was explaining, oh, they're just confused, they don't know what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And so the cops are just kind of, you know, listening and trying to figure out what's going on. Eventually, it sounds like they told Marcus, the kids have to, if you're, if, if these are the, their legal mothers, they have to come with them. Yeah. So Marcus says that he's going to go say goodbye and he runs inside and he close he shuts the door and he locks the door great so this is the beginning of the whole chain of events that end up happening so this begins an 80 minute standoff with the police so eventually more police are coming now the details on this um are a little bit fuzzy because there's kind of some back and forth but eyewitnesses said that they heard several gunshots during this time, mm -hmm. during the standoff. And, but the police came back and said, no, there was no gunshots. Hmm. So eventually, you know, uh, Marcus opens the door and he's got uh, blood all over his shirt. What the hell? And he comes out and basically puts his hands up, says, all right. So the cops rush in, they handcuff him, they see the blood all over his shirt. So they're like, all right, somebody's wounded. So they you know, they have enough of a suspicion to go into the house. Mm -hmm. So one of the first officers inside, his name's Eloy uh, Escareno. He, and he's uh, been with the force for a while. So he's a very seasoned guy. So he has his weapon drawn. Mm -hmm. He's calling out for the kids as he walks inside. The house is dark. One of the things he notices, which is kind of odd, is there's a bunch of caskets stacked up on top of each other in the living room. What the hell? And so he's he's going through, it's dark, he has a flashlight out. Eventually he reaches the back room, calls out, nothing's happening, you know, nobody, nobody answers back. So he flips on the light and it's a complete bloodbath in this room. So there's bodies stacked on top of each other. There's blood everywhere. So they're fret, like the, the bodies are still warm, meaning that it happened recently. So immediately he calls in, he needs medical response he's checking their pulses and nothing they're all dead so it comes to find out that there's nine bodies in that room there are two of his daughters marcus's daughters um elizabeth and sabrina so sabrina's 25 elizabeth is 17 and then there are seven of their kids uh, ranging in age from eight all the way down to one jeez so what's noticed is that they all have gunshots through one of their eyeballs. So they, they were shot, like the gun was pointed directly at their eye and they were, they were killed. So eventually everything is, um, you know, he get, Marcus gets arrested, uh, things get cleaned up, um, you know, and the trial starts. Mm -hmm. And 
this is where things kind of get interesting. So they found out that um, everyone was killed with a 22 pistol through the eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, they find the gun. And um, Marcus originally, his defense uh, says that Marcus didn't kill him, that Sabrina did, which is one of the, mm-hmm. the, the daughters that was killed. And they do uh, swab the gun. They don't find fingerprints, but they do find some of her DNA. And they don't find any of Marcus's. So that's kind of interesting. So that's throwing stuff off a little bit. And Marcus the whole time saying, nope, I didn't do it. She did it. She did it. She was crazy. What the hell? So the the um, the whole thing lasts several months as they kind of go back and forth. What's really sad is they bring in a lot of the kids mm-hmm. and they interview them. And a lot of them are standing by their father slash husband yeah um you know so uh i'll just read one of them uh which is is kind of sad uh rosa solario who's 23 two of her kids ethan who was four and sedona who was one who were among the dead she actually gets up and testifies and she wears the wedding band that marcus gave her and uh, she says she still loved him still considered herself his wife uh, she that she would support him no matter what, um, and you know it, which is crazy because she had originally talked with the police, you know behind closed doors, and she said that she was kind of conflicted, but yeah. now she's saying nope, I hundred percent stand by him, and she says I do love Marcus a lot. I understand what he did and everything, but at the same time, it's just that to me, he's my father. And I do not want to be responsible for putting him away. I just don't feel it's right for me to do that. So like, yeah, I mean, just years and years of of being groomed and told that whatever Marcus said went, that he was, he was all knowing, he was all seeing everything. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, after everything uh, happened, a lot of people didn't even realize that they had kids because they weren't allowed to come out and socialize with normal people. Uh, There was uh, Marcus... um, or well, he didn't say it, but a couple of the girls had said that when they were were allowed out, that they had to follow behind him, and that they had to look down at the ground so that they didn't make eye contact with anybody. Jesus. So I mean, um, just just a lot happened. Uh, several, you know, I will say that several of the um, the kids have gone on to you know, gotten therapy, gotten help mm-hmm. to help see, you know, what happened. A lot of them did see the evil that Marcus was, yeah. but there's a lot that still stand behind them and still give their support, uh, which is crazy. So uh, even with the evidence showing that Marcus didn't have any DNA evidence on the gun mm-hmm. to prove that he had, eventually it's it's basically just said he killed at least some of them at some point. Yeah. Um, there is, when they interview some of the kids, they share that there was a suicide pact that was created between all the kids. And Marcus basically stated that if any of them were to get separated or if anything were to be found out about what they had, that they were to kill themselves, the daughters were to kill their kids and then kill themselves. And so they think that Sabrina may have killed some of the kids Uh, and eventually killed herself, but it is thought that Marcus may have killed some as well. That's so depressing. Yeah. So on June 17th, 2005, 
a little over a year after everything happened, he is found guilty of the nine uh, counts of first-degree murder and 14 counts of forcible rape and sexual, sexual molestation of seven of his daughters and nieces, and he's sentenced to death, um, where he sits currently in San Quentin State Prison in California. So he's just sitting on death row, like, awaiting right. a date? Right. What the hell? Yeah. And so now all these kids are just left to have to deal with that, like, yep. the trauma, and, like, not really understanding what transpired and why and who he was. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. So, I mean, the whole the whole backstory of it is, you know, what really is is the interesting part as far as what led up to it. You know, mm -hmm. the people he met, which were not a lot, but uh, a lot of people that were interviewed that had, you know, been around Marcus had said that he was, you know, couldn't hold a job. He was working these random uh, small jobs to get paid under the table. Yeah. He did seem sort of smart and, you know. He has to be smart enough to be able to manipulate. To yeah, yeah, and, and had a way of uh, kind of comforting people, you know, and it seems like a lot of people that are sick, you know, they a lot of them do have that ability of they kind of appear, you know, almost as a puppet of that they're calm and collective and that, you know, they can talk to people and people don't, you know, so it's a, sometimes it's a surprise when things yeah, like this like happen. Yeah, like people don't suspect anything necessarily. Yeah. That's insane. I mean, he sounds like a stereotypical, like either narcissist or something along those lines, like whatever mental illness he likely suffered from, not that it necessarily excuses anything, but he sounds like a master manipulator, somebody that thrives on being uh, the center of attention, somebody that, you know what I mean? And then yeah. it, maybe from being deprived as a child, just kind of like developed into this like sick, twisted personality. But yeah. that whole story, I've never heard of that before in my life. Have yeah. you heard of that before you researched it? No, no. I mean, it came out of the blue. I was just trying to look up, you know, something that, that would interest me. Yeah. Um, and I came across different. this and I, you know, and what's crazy is I don't follow true crime too much, but you know, when big things happen, you know, that you, especially recent, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of people, oh yeah, I, I didn't know exactly what happened, but I've heard of that. Yeah. And for this to be, you know, it happened, you know, 16 years ago, that's still fairly recent. I had yeah. never heard anything about this. Um, you know, and I thought it was interesting as I learned, you know, how he was kind of brainwashing these kids mm -hmm. that he was talking about how Jesus was a vampire and that and I just thought that was so weird, but you know, apparently he had this weird fascination and he made the kids all watch vampire movies and he even gave some of the kids middle names from these vampire movies and yeah. books and stuff. And uh, yeah, like one of them, their name is, uh, it's really sad, he was one years old, but it's Java St. Vladin, Vladinespri Wesson. And I thought, where did this name come from? But yeah, like he he gave them names from the the movies and the shows about vampires this dude sounds like a straight up nut job i wonder i wonder in the state of california are they still even sentencing people to death anymore or if he'll just sit there until he dies or what the hell is going on with that yeah i don't know i mean i can definitely tell you that how old is he does it say um he's got to be old right so he's born in 46 so oh, yeah so he's what probably in his 60s now 80s isn't that yeah. 
my brain's melted, so I can't do math right now. But I think that's he, that mean he's in his 80s or 74 or something like that. Yeah, but I mean, damn, like somebody I said, that's listening, do math better than us. <laughs> <because laughs> I'm just pulling numbers out of my ass. I'm pretty sure he's 76. But, you know, like I said, the whole story of everything, you know, the the grooming of, you know, the rosemary. The and your own children. Yeah. Like, that's something that I can't, I, I can't understand. Like, there has to be something so fundamentally wrong with you, not only to abuse children, period, but your, like, literally your own children is, like, such a step further than I feel like. Yeah, and what's sad is there's actually pictures of the kids, and they're a lot of them are smiling, and they feel, fa- they, you know, they look fairly normal. But knowing, you know, the backstory of everything is just, it's just crazy. I feel like how do you ever come out of that, like any semblance of normal? Like, like I hope that the kids that have realized, you know, like the trauma and like what was wrong with the situation, have been able to like move past. But I can't possibly comprehend how anybody would be able to like really truly move past that in any shape or form yeah damn yeah it was it was a crazy one um you know and it's it's hard to talk about these kind of things because it is messed up and people do exist like this in the world and that's unfortunate you know because i i like to believe that the world is mostly good but people like this do exist and you know and you can look and see i mean this lasted for years well that's the other thing i was gonna say i completely forgot was it's so mind-boggling to me and seems so unlikely that nobody could have intervened at any point in this like even outside people even neighbors and things like that like you know and even the state of california like even if you are homeschooling I mean, I guess this is what probably transpiring in the 90s if all of it kind of fell apart in the early 2000s. But you would think that there would be some like, I don't know, like checking up on this and like, you know, checking to see like, are they actually being homeschooled and what have they learned? And I know a lot of states in this area, they don't have those types of laws like Utah is one of them, actually, that there aren't a whole lot of regulations in terms of homeschooling, which leaves a lot of room for abuse in my personal opinion because if if nobody is intervening in what children are being taught then are they even being taught anything at all yeah and so it's tough like when you hear a story like this it's like how did nobody intervene like child protection services like there were those reports of children looking through trash cans like did nobody call authorities like hey these kids look like they're starving so it's just super infuriating that it feels like something probably could have been done multiple times throughout this entire story and maybe it wasn't and that's just super depressing to me yeah no and it's it's hard you know i think especially with this day and age you know and maybe not so much then but it's hard to decide you know when do you intervene you know when you notice things and you know looking through all of this and and researching like i did it seemed like there was quite a few people that came forward and talked about things that they had seen and yet you know nothing was done um you know i did see that before the police had showed up here they had showed up a couple times before for just very minute things Mm. um you know and it's hard to say this was a this was a you know a poor neighborhood low income um you know usually in these kinds of things the police are stretched very thin 
you know, there's yeah. not as much funding, which sounds opposite, you know, but your multi-million dollar, you know, neighborhoods are going to be much more secure and much yeah, more. Yeah, hmm. they're going to have way more funds. But uh, yeah, I mean, all around extremely uh, sad. And yeah. I can say wholeheartedly that, you know, I'm glad this guy is rotting in prison. You know, yeah, and for sure. What's even sadder too is it doesn't seem like he's he's very remorseful about it. I'm sure he's not. You know, um, looking at some of the news accounts, they'd said that when he was sentenced, the day of his sentencing, that uh, several of his family that had showed up began crying. You know, and he just kind of sat there and just just took it you know so to me that means that he knew damn well that what he was doing was incredibly wrong he was manipulating people and he just it was all for personal gain you know like you oh, said yeah. you know he wanted to feel big himself mm -hmm. you know he was in charge so. i feel like at the end of this like i know some people are hesitant on when to intervene and what to do but if you ever see something that makes you uncomfortable I personally, and maybe somebody can hear this and disagree, but I don't know what harm could come out of intervening, at least calling somebody, reporting like some kind of tip, like worst case scenario, it's nothing. And the police show up and realize it's nothing and you're not going to get in trouble for it unless it's like malicious and you're lying. But if you truly see something or feel like there's something going on or maybe a kid doesn't look like they're being fed or it looks suspicious or you have signs of abuse. I mean, there's a reason why we have mandated reporters in this country and like teachers and nurses, they're legally bound by law that if they suspect that something is going on, they have to report it. And I feel like that shouldn't be any different for like the average person. I mean, if we have a neighbor and we see kids playing outside and something doesn't look right or doesn't feel right, or we overhear a conversation, like I would hope to God that we would do something about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it, I will tell everybody this, um, you know, when it comes to things that, you know, you feel uncomfortable, you know, trust your gut. If oh, yeah. you don't feel like something's right or something's off, you know, go with it. Yeah. If, if that means calling the police, if that means, you know, getting the hell out of there, um, you know, go with with what you feel. Because we have instincts for a reason. I mean, there's a reason why you have that gut feeling. It's because it's your body and your brain telling you that something here isn't right or you might be in danger or somebody's in danger. So I feel like for me personally, like I've had experiences where I've had to call the cops, whether it's because um, I was driving and it felt like somebody in front of me was swerving a lot and it made me uncomfortable. Like once you finally like have to do something like that, where you, where you feel uncomfortable and you call the police and they're super, super kind about it. They're super, super helpful. And they take it just as seriously as you are taking it. It kind of validates that feeling of like, yeah, I felt really silly doing that. But then, you know, four state troopers pulled over that person and, it turns out they were drinking and I had to give a witness statement Then you end up feeling a lot better. Like that person could have killed somebody and yeah. yeah, it sucks that I got them in trouble. But at the same time, I feel validated. Like maybe I made the right decision here. And I feel like a lot of people maybe haven't had an experience like that, but once you do that and once you like overcome that weird feeling of I'm intervening in something I shouldn't, the people on 911 calls, they're so receptive. Like, when I called, they were like, yep, tell us everything. Like, what are you seeing? What did you see? Where are you? 
And there was never a point in that conversation that anybody made me feel like I shouldn't have called. So just kind of want to share with people like nobody's going to judge you for yeah wanting somebody to be safe. Exactly. Exactly. Damn. That so. story is not. No, that one's a rough one. Um, like I said, it's it was hard reading into it and just seeing how, how deep it got. So, um, but, you know. Like I said, if we can spread awareness, yeah. you know, so hopefully we can learn from this, these things, but, uh, but yeah, so I, that is my, my share for this week. Well, thank you for finding that. I've literally never heard of that before. That's crazy. Oh, well, thank you everybody for joining us on this Saturday night. I'm sorry. It's been so long since we've posted something, but for anybody not listening, if you guys ever want to join in on one of our live sessions or something along those lines, we do this with Patreon, which is a subscription-based service that um, allows for us to purchase new equipment, like the new microphones that we're now using right now, um, and it allows us to be able to produce really quality podcast episodes for you guys, and then you guys get to benefit by hearing bonus content, by getting to experience us podcasting live, um, and seeing all kinds of behind-the-scenes pictures and videos. So if you're interested, that's patreon.com slash between the crimes. And then you can also find us on all of the major social media outlets. Twitter, we are at BT Crimes. And then everything else you can find by searching between the crimes. Yeah. So, And I just want to give a quick shout-out uh, that uh, thank you for having me on. I'm definitely. glad I got to fill in for Jenna. And uh, who knows, I probably will show up again in the future. Yeah, but it's fun uh, having, I want to like, maybe that's something we can do. We'll have to talk to Jenna, but it'd be fun to just have like guest appearances in general. Like yes. not even just you, but like different people. I feel like that'd be so fun. True. And uh, just want to give a shout out. Celia loves showing me where all the different listeners are coming from. So I want to not only uh, give a shout out to all the the U.S. listeners, but also internationally. Uh, we get a lot of listeners in like Ireland and the U.K. Mm-hmm. and and Spain and all these places. So I, you know, really appreciate that uh, that, you know, you guys gave this podcast to listen, even though this is a little podunk, you yeah, know, it really is. A podcast out of, uh, out of Utah. Yeah, so sure. we do appreciate everybody and their support and all the friends and family, um, all of Celia's family in Michigan that always listen. They're some of her biggest fans and, uh, even some friends of mine. Uh, I have a friend named Jaden who recently started listening and has <laughs> binged all of them. And it, uh, made me feel all warm and fuzzy knowing that, that uh, he took the time to do that. So I know that was like literally that made my whole day. He said that he listens to every single one, and I was like, "Wait, why do you do that?" <laughs> so it's been super fun. Like all these people, it's been really nerve wracking sharing with people that we know. Like that was something that me and Jenna really struggled with. Was like we have our between the crimes Facebook page, but then sharing content on my personal Facebook page has been really frightening for me. But overall, like everything has been so overwhelmingly positive and really uplifting so we really just want to thank everybody for taking part in this and sharing our content on your facebook pages and commenting it's it seriously is like a dream come true in a weird way so yeah so well i just want to say i appreciate everybody and you guys all have a great rest of your weeks yeah thank you guys have a great day bye